Hello, welcome to the Blue Grid podcast. This is your host, Major Ani Fedotova, a psychologist at Los Angeles Air Force Base. What makes us resilient? What is grit? Please join me as I set out to discover how we can become greedier. This podcast features current and former military leaders, mental health experts, elite athletes, veterans, special operators, superior performers, POWs, and others affiliated with the military who have overcome significant adversity. Each guest will discuss the unique methods and practices to help airmen and really all service members or anyone interested to build mental toughness and grit. The views expressed are those of the author or guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the United States Air Force, the Department of Defense, or the United States government. Dr. Gary Percival is a fellow psychologist who functions as the Joint Personnel Recovery Agency Survival Evasion Resistance and Escape Seer Psychologist. I don't think it's a stretch to say that you're one of the fathers of Seer Psychology and certainly in the Air Force. You have worked with POWs, various recovered, returned, and repatriated United States DOD personnel, and you have trained and continue to train generations of seer psychologists. Welcome to Blue Grid. Happy to be here. Excellent. Do you mind just uh, opening up by sharing about what you do and how did you get into that line of work? Well, I'll share about how I got into the line of work and then move into what I do. I started off college wanting to be a math major. I was into math and into computers and did that for about three years and got bored. I was looking for what I wanted to do with my life. I started working in a group home with emotionally disturbed juvenile delinquent boys. In this group home, the the boys had an average of seven felony convictions. So I started taking psychology classes, which I found interesting and which helped me in this new job. And so I decided to pursue psychology. And I always wanted to be a rural psychologist, to work in a rural area. And so I went to school. During my graduate work, I worked with youth. I worked with critical incident stress debriefing teams. I also was married with two kids and one on the way. So when it came time to go to internship, I looked at the Air Force. The Air Force provided training and education, but it also provided what I always wanted, a small community, basically rural psychology. You're working on a base with 5,000 people where you have all those rural relationships and things that you have to deal with. And so I fell in love with the Air Force. The job came open at the survival school, which also happened to be on Fairchild Air Force Base. So I jumped from the clinic over to the survival school and worked the survival school for two years until I got the opportunity to get out of the Air Force and do the same thing as a civilian. So I've been working for JPRA ever since 98. That's a long time. <laughs> I really enjoy what I do. So you worked in Fairchild as a seer psychologist since 1989? No, I started at Fairchild in 1996. 96. And I worked at Fairchild for two years, and then I got the opportunity to come to work for JPRA as initially as a contractor. So in November of 1998, I started working for JPRA. So I noticed in your resume, when I, when I read your biography, you also wrote down, you took a job after a psychologist was shot. I'm gathering that's an important or relevant detail yeah. to your life. 
So that was right after internship. I went to San Antonio, Wilford Hall, for my internship. I was selected to come to Fairchild Air Force Base. And soon after I was selected, a gunman went through the hospital at Fairchild Air Force Base in June of 1994 and targeted the psychologist and the psychiatrist, killing them both, and then went on a shooting spree throughout the hospital. Hmm. And so that's the base I came into. And this shooting happened in June, and I came in September so it was one of the quickest turnarounds. I signed into the hospital on 12 September. I was fully credentialed and had a full caseload on 14 September. So, as you know, the Air Force doesn't work that fast usually. <laughs> no, they do not. That is very quick. Yeah, so I worked the aftermath of that shooting for two years as a young captain right out of internship. So that was, uh, I had a lot of leeway. I was able to do a lot of outward outreach going and doing stress management training and classes with the base at that time. I didn't have to worry too much about you know the number of people I saw in my office because it was more about helping the base heal. The gunman went through the hospital on Monday. That Saturday, they were preparing for an air show when a B-52 bomber from Fairchild Air Force Base crashed, killing the crew. Mm. And so we had those double incidences that I, I dealt with during my first two years here at Fairchild. Well, that's a tough assignment to go into. Yes, it was. They took it away from me for a while. They said, we can't have a person straight out of internship go into that assignment, but they couldn't get anybody else to take it. So come September, they, they gave it back to me, and I stepped into that. It was really an opportunity because it was... Not traditional psychology. I wasn't sitting in the office dealing with traditional mental health issues. We'd had these tragic incidents, and people were trying to normalize and work through those incidents. And so that's what I did for two years. Over the course of that two years, I worked a lot with the flyers. So when I left at the end of two years, I had more flyers coming into my office for appointment than most Air Force psychologists see in their career. I had three or four flyers coming in every week dealing with various issues. But that was due to all that outreach and mm -hmm. working with flyers. You established the relationships with the community. Yeah. These people are highly selected. They go through selection. They go through training. They have skills and abilities. And then events happen in their life that they haven't had education or knowledge on how to deal with. So it was more about teaching them how normal people react to abnormal situations and then giving them some options and opportunities to, to cope with that, normalize, and instead of calling themselves sick, you know, you're having an adjustment disorder. You're dealing with this situation. Now, how do you want to deal with it? So that attitude played really well coming over to survival school. Why did you become a seer psychologist? I know you mentioned the kind of opportunity presented itself. Well, I didn't even know about psychology when I came in the Air Force. I had worked with outward bound stuff, rural settings in Utah. I'd always had an interest in survival. I'd taken survival classes throughout my college. So I'd always had an interest in that. And so it just all came together. I ended up here at Fairchild where the survival school was on the other side of the base my mentor, my supervisor was the survival school psychologist, so I got to know a little bit about survival. So when he left and the opportunity came to go to survival school, that fit. That was something I wanted to do. 
For a layman person, can you explain what, as a seer psychologist, what do we do? So, seer psychologist takes the last hundred years of how we have managed and handled people who have been held in captivity and have survived or evaded and takes all those lessons learned and then tries to help people understand how normal people react to those extreme situations. So we take all the learning from psychology on motivation, behavior change, how people overcome challenges and obstacles, and then apply those when normal, healthy people have abnormal situations that happen in their life. And so seer psychologists have basically two functions. One is they work at the schoolhouses that teach survival across DOD to make sure that training is safe and effective. And the other is they work with isolated personnel or warriors who go out there who are on a mission, who get separated from their unit, who are evading and then recovered or are captured and then brought home. I really want to jump right into your work and the specifics of your work. I know you cannot discuss your patients and we're not going to do that, but this podcast is about developing grit and you had the privilege of working with some incredibly resilient individuals over your lifetime and your professional career. What did you learn about developing grit as a result of your work? Are there commonalities in the strategies that your patients use? Yeah, there are some commonalities across people who are resilient, who have that will to continue to overcome whatever obstacle. And you'll see that pattern even in the podcast that you've developed with people who have overcome. And so I've, I've kind of broken that down into the the four things that they they do. One is despite their feelings, despite their emotions, despite the despair of whatever may have happened to them, their feelings of hopelessness, they continue to act. Hmm. They continue to do things. They don't just sit there and not do anything. So they reach out for support. They don't always wait for someone to come and help them, but they're reaching out. And if no one is there, they're reaching out and continuing to do different things. And then... Typically, somewhere in this process, after they get stabilized, they reach out and help others. Very interesting. So even though they're in the middle of captivity, in the middle of a, being a POW, they tend to reach out and help those and support those around them. So basically, you know, resilient people tend to turn outward. People who have difficulty tend to turn inward. How very interesting. Is it something that you've, over years, developed a theory about that? So it's, it's kind of over years developed a theory, but it's also when I've been talking to people about how they react, how normal people react. People get caught up in today's world on what people think about them. So if something bad happens to you and you feel depressed, you're not supposed to feel depressed. And so you start acting on the depression instead of realizing No, if that happened to anybody, they would be feeling sad and feelings of depression. So now that I have this feeling, how do I want to act? So there is a degree of acceptance in the beginning? Yeah. The emotion just serves to be a motivator to act. And so resilient people tend to accept their emotion, but not react to it. 
They accept it and then determine how they want to act. What can I do to make it better? What can I do to overcome, to cope with? And so they don't get hung up on the emotion. They focus their behaviors on things that are going to help them cope with the situation. Yeah, I often say to my patients, especially with depressions, that you don't have to feel like doing it. You don't have to like doing it. You just have to do it. Yeah, that goes back to if you look at how stress impacts your life. We tend to think that stress is a bad thing, but stress isn't a bad thing. Stress is a good thing. We know that the closest a human can get to having no stresses in their life is if they're a quadriplegic. Everywhere below that break receives very little input from the environment and has minimal stress. So stress is a critical part of learning to grow, to overcome, and to adapt. But it's how we manage that stress, how we keep it healthy, that determines whether we're going to continue to progress, to have resilience, to overcome, or whether it's going to fester, make us sick, and eat at us. Do you have a specific example that come to mind from working with, with the recovered personnel of will to act? For instance, I worked with a man who spent 10 months in a cage. Mm -hmm. The cage was five feet tall, five feet wide, and 10 feet long. Mm. And he was in that cage for 10 months, sometimes by himself, sometimes with up to six people in the cage. He had a daily routine. He would do his push-ups. He would say his prayers. He would take mental trips and vacations to get out of there. He had a plan, and he carried out that plan. About six weeks before he was rescued, they put a young man in with him. And this was an older man. He was a retired military. He was, you know, early 60s. They put a young man in with him. And this young man, in the same situation, same conditions, just gave up hope, laid there on the ground, didn't move, didn't do anything, nothing he could do. Well, when they were rescued, the older gentleman who continued to act, continued to do things, continued to have hope, was able to climb up out of the hole and move and take care of himself, where the younger gentleman had to be put on a stretcher and carried out. Wow. Yeah. So they were both experiencing the same environment. They were both experiencing the same physical stressors, lack of food, worry about what's going to happen. But one of them continued to act, continued to do things, continued to try to do whatever he could within his environment to take care of himself. Yeah. Uh, one of my favorite books is Viktor Frankl, Men's Search for Meaning. And he talks just about that. The moment you, you gave up, People died not because they were hungry or because they lost families, that they mentally just gave up. Yeah. And that separated those who made it through and those who didn't. We see that in survival stories. We see people who are out in the wilderness, something bad happens, they just sit down, give up, and die. And we hear of other people who, with two broken legs after a fall down a crevasse, will crawl out and crawl five miles with their arms to get to someplace. No physical difference. It is the mental attitude of, yep, this is a bad situation, but what do I want to do? Yeah. It's accepting the emotion, but not letting the emotion control you. 
So the first part was will to act that's doing something. And the second was looking for support. I imagine in your work, you've encountered patients who really didn't have that much support. How were they able to find support in extreme situations of isolation? People look for support from all sorts of avenues. And I call it giving themselves over to a higher power. And that power is something that's outside of themselves that they're living for, striving for, working towards. So sometimes that is, if they're isolated, it's getting back to family. Family is something that's not with them, that's outside of themselves, that they have to survive to take care of their family, to, be, to get back with them. Sometimes that power is a god who will be there and help and support them. Sometimes that is just the mission or the unit or their cause, their purpose. I've worked and talked with people who have been through terrible things, but because they believed in what they were doing, they believed in the cause and purpose, and that's what they lived for was that higher power. When you don't have anything with you, you don't have other people there to comfort and support you, then people who give themselves over to that higher power strive to reach that. That serves as their outward social support until they can get to a place where they actually have that support. And last component of, of that great resiliency you mentioned was after looking for support, you reach out to help others, to provide support to other people. Can you talk about that? Yeah, we, we see that all the time. Um, even with people who are held together in captivity or evading together, once they have themselves taken care of, they know where they're going. Those people who tend to recover and do the best are those who have reached out and offered support and helped other people. And then even when they come back, we see that in the community. People who have had similar experiences will reach out and try to talk to the families, people who are isolated and missing, going through that support. And your podcast the people you have interviewed and talked to, that's kind of that final piece where now they're talking to you because they want to make it better for someone else mm. or they've started doing things to kind of help and support those around them. So that's an ongoing, you know, now I'm back, now I've learned these lessons, what's my purpose in life and how do I continue that purpose? You know, it's so true. With my interview with Major Capratia, retired, she's a quadriplegic who's been affected by the car accident and she really is so active in in our community still. Uh, she participates in workouts, she organizes various activities on base, very involved. And I've heard from so many people that interview touch them. So even just touching them, just moving them and just inspiring them, I think is important. So I think that's such a great example. She's doing exactly what you're describing. Yeah. And that helps her to develop that resilience and strength. Right, right. Resilience and strength is also contagious. Oh, interesting. Can you tell me more? We know that if one person will act and somebody sees them acting and seeing them doing it, then other people will get involved. You know, it goes back to all the studies on personal responsibility. You know, we know that you get three or more people in a room, nobody will act. Well, that's true until one person acts. And when one person acts, then those around them will engage and start acting. And we see that it's the same with resiliency. 
if somebody who you see is going through the same thing that you're doing and they start acting, they start doing positive things, it can be contagious and spread across the community. That is such a great message for all the, the supervisors, leaders, commanders out there. If you're resilient yourself, then that's just setting an example for everybody else. That is such a great message. You know, I am um, curious, um, were you ever surprised when you were speaking with your patients to learn about some of the strategies, some of the coping strategies that you would never have adopted yourself, but they were surprisingly helpful to them? You know, everybody is a unique individual and everybody adapts strategies that are based on their personality and based on their strengths. And so all of the coping strategies are new and unique and things that I wouldn't have done, but I can't say that I've ever been surprised because they all seem to be congruent with their personality type. Okay. So if you think about someone who's going through a very difficult situation, it's their core personality, those actions that they choose that help them to cope with that. So it strengthens their core personality. So we don't see many personality changes across these types of situations. What you will see is a difference in priorities, that people will reprioritize things and decide what's important in their life. And then they use that, so they use who they are, their basic makeup of their personality and who they are, their desires of where they want to go, to change a situation, how they want this to be different, and then they look at it with optimism that there are things that they can do, that they can act. They don't call it optimism when they're in the middle of it, but it is that mm. I'm not going to give up. I'm going to continue to act. There's something I can do. This situation is bad, but I can continue to do things. And that optimism is the vector that keeps them going, that helps them choose their personal coping strategies, whether that's become the gray man and sit in the corner and not talk to anybody, whether that's actively engaging with guards, with the enemy, whether that's creating stories in their heads. There's innumerable ways people learn to cope and adjust and adapt. But it becomes resilient when those coping strategies lead them to healthier behaviors. The difference between resilience and hardiness because sometimes people confuse those two. I don't know what the difference. Can you tell me what, what the difference? Hardiness is like a brick building. Hardiness can withstand the elements. It doesn't have to have resilience because it's not affected by what happens to them. The problem with hardiness is that there's always something that can overcome you can be a brick building and you can withstand hurricane force winds. But when the earthquake comes, because you cannot move and adjust to the earthquake, it shatters you. And so hardy people tend to be able to withstand a lot, but when they get broken, they break hard. Whereas resilient people will feel the stress, will feel the emotions, will go through all of that, but then they'll be able to recover quicker. And you can have hardiness in some things and resilience in other things. It's not all or nothing. We try to teach resilience in survival school, not hardiness, because we want people to know that they are going to be depressed in their life. They are going to feel down. They are going to be overwhelmed. And they do need to realize that when they're feeling that way, they can still act. It's almost like resiliency has the element of flexibility. 
Yeah. So resiliency builds hardiness, but hardiness does not necessarily build resiliency. I see. And some people ask me why grit, right? Then the name of this blue grit. Um, I, I think that's my personal favorite because to me, it involves what exactly what you described, action, to grab something, to be greedy, yeah. to do something. I think that's why I like the word grit. To me, grit is just a way to describe resiliency. Grit is when things get tough, when things get hard, and you know they're tough and hard, you accept it and you just keep going. Right, right. And what about the opposite of the healthy behaviors? Have you ever encountered from your practice those individuals who you thought, my gosh, this is really unhelpful. I wish that you would have done this a little bit differently. What are the techniques or strategies that were especially unhelpful? So I am kind of unique in the population that I work with because these guys are now being recovered from sometimes years and years in isolation. People who have unhealthy coping strategies in POW settings tend not to last very long. If you can go back to Viktor Frankl, mm -hmm. they're the ones who just give up and don't come back. Mm -hmm. So the people who I get to deal with are the people who have had healthy coping strategies for them, has supported them and helped them to make it through that event. Once they're back... Now they've had these very powerfully ingrained coping strategies that may not serve them or may not help them return to normal life. And so we work a lot with talking to people about how's that going to impact your family. Yes, that was a very powerful coping strategy. For example, the man who spent 10 months in the cage, he spent a lot of time dissociating a lot of time going to his happy place, thinking about things, removing himself psychologically from his environment. Well, now he's home. If you spend a lot of time dissociating, people are going to think you're weird and need help. So it's not that he was sick and having psychotic breaks. It's he had a very powerful coping strategy that was no longer functioning. That's where you go back to getting them to look at where they want to be. What are those long-term goals? How, how do they want to get there and how are they going to refocus? And so you work on coping strategies, not calling them sick or having difficulty. They have to learn a new strategy for a new situation. So I am interested in the impact that this work had on you or is having on you. I mean, working with suffering and pain, I guess, has impact on all of us. And it shapes us differently. Maybe we view the world through our special lens. Is there something that you can share about how work with your patients shaped your views? And is there something that you've learned about yourself as a result of this work? I don't see my work as working with people with suffering and pain. I see my work as working with people who are resilient and look at how to find the silver lining. So if you focus on the suffering and pain of torture or five years in captivity, you're not going to survive. So you have to focus on, yes, this is happening. Where do I want to be? This is this current state. This is not who I am or where I'm going. And so you're working with people who are resilient. And so when you're working with people, I don't focus on the suffering and pain. Yes, that happened. But now that you're not there, how are you going to cope and how are you going to survive? How are you going to accept what has happened, not let it define who you are, 
and look forward to your long-term goals. So when I'm, I'm working with people, I'll often draw a timeline for them. And the timeline will have three points. It'll have now, the future, and the past. And if you think about people who are struggling, people who are struggling in the now look very short-term to the future, and they predict that nothing's going to change. It's going to be horrible and awful. And they use as their reasons for that prediction all the bad things that have happened to them in the past. And we've all had bad things happen to us in the past, some more than others. But they use that. I've been in captivity five years. I've been away from my family. I've been away from all these bad things, so nothing is going to get better. Well, resilient people, they look to the future. They look long-term in the future and say, this is where I want to be. This is what I'm working for. This is how I'm going to overcome. And then they look to the past at all those same bad events that have happened And they say, that's my proof that I can overcome because I've survived all of these events. I am strong. I'm resilient with optimism to the future. The same events is how we look at, how we define those events, either as this is bad and horrible and nothing's going to change, which is unhealthy, or I'm a survivor and I've overcome all of these. I can reach my future goals, which is a resilient attitude. And so I think that's been the biggest lesson that I've learned and accomplished in my own life is whenever I get caught up in short-term negative events, how horrible and awful it is now, I take a step back, I look at the future, I look at all the things I've overcome, and then I make a plan to strive for whatever that future goal is, that long-term goal is. The other thing that people forget to do in in high-stress situations is... Two things happen in a high-stress situation. One is people lose the ability to predict and control, and so they forget to act. They forget to do anything. They wait because they don't know how to act, so they don't do anything. The other one is people get over-fixated on one action. So they start doing something, but it's not leading to any positive outcome, but they keep doing it because they don't know what else to do. Oh, that's really good. Humans are designed to make better decisions when they're acting. When we're moving, we make better decisions. We make better choices. So resilient people act, but then they'll assess the action towards that long-term goal. Is that action getting me where I want to go? Then they'll adjust. So it's that, that pattern of acting, assessing, and adjusting that defines a resilient person's behaviors. How do you develop resiliency? How do you instill it? What is the recipe? The recipe for resilience is very simple. It is when you are feeling depressed and when you are feeling anxious, you continue to act. Resiliency is defined as being knocked down, but pulling yourselves back up by the bootstraps and continuing to go. The more that you do that, the more that you realize that when things get tough, when you're stressed, when you're feeling anxious, that you can still act, then the more you develop resiliency. So if you look at survival training across the DOD, that's the hallmark of survival training. They put them through very tough, very challenging training where they start to second guess and question themselves, but they teach them the coping strategies and techniques and skills that will get them to act. So regardless of how they're feeling, when they feel depressed and anxious, they can still act. 
And my last question to you is, is there something that you would like to say to those who are going through hard times right now? I'll leave them with what I tell lots of the people I work with who are struggling with the emotional side of that. A lot of people will say, you know, I shouldn't be angry. I shouldn't feel depressed. I shouldn't do this. I tell them, no, regardless of what you're feeling, regardless of what you're going through, when you feel that emotion, just accept it. It's okay for me to feel however I want to. It's okay for me to be angry. It's okay for me to be depressed. It's okay for me to lay down on the floor and throw a tantrum if I want to. But how do I want to act? When you accept your emotion, you take the intensity out of it, and you can make clear decisions on how you want to act. Mm. And then you act. Yeah. And it's not always going to work, so then you have to adjust. You have to fine-tune your behavior and act again. And that defines resilience. Awesome. And this is really helpful. This is just the kind of the meat and potatoes of, um, of I think, of this podcast, of the intent of this podcast. I really wanted to interview you. Thank you so much for this conversation. This is your host, Major Anya Fedotova. Thank you for listening to the Blue Grid podcast. Hopefully you enjoyed this interview. My goal is to air the narratives of courage, vulnerability, and crit to normalize the airman's own challenges and help them internalize the message of hope and recovery. This discussion is not a formal medical advice and any techniques, treatment, diagnosis, or alternative actions discussed are not a recommended treatment or course of action for all listeners and are not a replacement for professional medical assistance. You are encouraged to seek medical psychological help for your unique issue. If you have feedback, please find me in the global. My email is anavfedotova.mil at mail.mil. It's anna.v.fedotova.mil at mail.